Today we're going to dig into uh, to the prophetic word offered to us in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 and following. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me there. Isaiah 9, 2 and following. If not, you can follow along with the words on the screen as we together hear the word of the Lord. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be de- destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is God's reading offered to us in its, uh, and God's word offered to us in its reading and its hearing. So we give thanks to the Lord God Almighty. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Gracious God, what a gift it is to gather around your word, to hear these prophetic statements that ring so deeply true for us because of our experience of your great love. Lord, we ask that as we enter into this space and time, you would make yourself known to us. Open our eyes that we would see, our ears that we would hear. Open our minds that we would come to know and understand your word, our hearts that we would feel its power. And I ask, God, that you would open our hands. Open our hands that we would offer grace to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, uh, my, my wife Lauren and I took our daughter Addison on a college campus tour extravaganza. Uh, we, we went to LSU, uh, we went to Alabama, we went to Belmont in Nashville, and we went to Ole Miss. Uh, my daughter doesn't want to go to school in Texas. I don't know what's wrong with her. Uh, and so, and so, um, so we went on this, this campus tour, and I had lots of time to drive, right? I love driving. I think I've, I've, I've shared that with you before. Great time to think, great time to process. So I'm driving, they're asleep, things are great. And I started reflecting back on my own decision-making process on where I was going to go to college. You could reflect on your own. How did you decide where you would go? What was that process like? What, what, where did you visit? Was it just assumed? My dad went to Lamar University because it was the only place that people in Southeast Texas went. And so he went to Lamar because that's what you do. Did you just go somewhere because that's what you do? Or did you go through a, a decision-making process? For me, uh, I went to Centenary College in Shreveport, Louisiana. And I remember uh, it's a small liberal arts school, uh, United Methodist School. And I remember the process of, of, of working through that decision uh, and it all ended up uh, hinging on, depending on, 
uh, me being a part of the Centenary College Choir. Uh, this, this choir is, is well known across the region, specifically in Louisiana. They, they sing concerts uh, once a month on weekend tours all across the South, uh, and then they go on international trips every other year. And so whenever I tried out for the choir, I remember uh, Dr. Uh, Will Andrus telling me about what was on tap for the international trip that would be in May after my, senior, my, my freshman year, excuse me, my freshman year in college, he told me that we are going to South Africa. And if you make the choir, you will go to South Africa as an 18-year-old kid. And I was like, I'm down. That sounds freaking awesome, right? Who, who wouldn't want to go to South Africa as an 18-year-old? Okay, so... Uh, so then he, he wanted to sweeten the deal just one more again. Like he just turned it up one, one notch more. He said, and here's, here's something that I also, I mean, I can't guarantee this, he said. But we've gotten into a little bit of a tradition here at the Centenary College Choir of going to sing at the White House before the president and his first lady at Christmas. And if you're a part of the Centenary College Choir, you very likely will go sing in front of the president this December. And I was like, come on now. That's, I mean, that's some heady stuff, right? Like, that's like really big heady stuff. And so I decided then and there, man, if I get into the Centenary College Choir, not if I get into the Centenary, if I get into the choir, I'm going there. Like, that's, that's where I'm going to go solely for that reason now i travel south africa and that i go to the white house and let me tell you the white south africa didn't disappoint but the white house didn't disappoint you 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 are the the feature choir of the evening uh and uh and they have just lit all of the christmas decorations for the white house which are unbelievable and they have the big white house tree and and and, and the choir is uh, standing there and they have like dignitaries coming through in tour groups one at a time and they bring them through one at a time and so you kind of get in this rhythm and you're like you know starting to learn how to breathe a little bit because you're so overwhelmed with the pressure of singing in front of all these folks and, and the group comes through and, and and then leaves and then all of a sudden a couple of secret service guys come in and it happened Bill and Hillary Clinton walked in and stood before us, just the two of them, as we sang uh, a Christmas carol for them. And I, my heart was, like it was just pounding. And I was so nervous, and I'm not a great singer to begin with. I like get, I'm, I'm a choral singer. I'm not a soloist, you know what I'm saying? Like I, I can blend, just let me blend in. And I was sitting there thinking, I hope I'm blending enough because I want them to hear everybody else in this choir. And, and I got to do that multiple times. I, I also got to sing in front of uh, George Bush and Laura. And I even got to take a picture, just, just me and Laura and one of my friends. And, and we're standing there in the picture. And, and, and like, you know when the smile just is like, like, like to the ear and it's so natural and you're not even having to work at it, right? I remember those moments meeting these presidents and their wives and thinking, man, does it get any cooler than this? But that's a part of our like, 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 like DNA. Like it's something, I don't know, maybe 
I would even say culturally here in America, but I think it's a global phenomenon that we're enamored with authority figures. Uh, I mean, I mean, put it this way. Whenever Harry and Meghan got married, 1.9 billion, billion people watched their wedding. And he's not even going to be king, right? He's like, like this, like, 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 come on. Like, he's just like a prince, you know? And 1.9 billion people were so infatuated with this wedding that they dedicated their time, set their their clock, uh, and paid attention so that they could uh, be present for the wedding. We're enamored with, with royalty, with positions of power, with positions of authority, and I think part of it goes to, to something within each of us that goes maybe two steps deeper and that is that when, whenever we face trials, whenever there's great hardship or challenge that's before us, both as individuals but also maybe even more so uh, as, as, as a community or as a nation, we're looking for, searching out uh, some authoritarian uh, influence that could speak a direction for us. We just need someone to tell us what to do and how to do it because we, we feel lost. And, and when the choices are so complex and the, and the challenges are so serious and, and you don't know what's safe and what's not. I, I mean, uh, maybe I'm starting to dip a little bit into 2020 here, right? We start looking to someone to tell us to be the voice of authority over us. That's woven into our human nature, maybe even the corruption of our human nature. And it's evidenced early on in Scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to spend a little bit of time in 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you do have your Bibles and want to take some notes uh, in them as we go, you could, you could follow along there. 1 Samuel chapter 8 is a turning point chapter in Scripture. A turning point chapter in scripture because God has led the, the, the people of Israel out of slavery uh, through the wilderness and they enter into the promised land. And then he, he decides that he's going to govern over the people as king, as the Lord over the nation, unique amongst all the nations. He will be their Lord. God will be king. And he will have judges that will uh, be arbiters of God's truth for the people. Not kings. Not lords, judges, without the, the same uh, power or authority, fully submissive to God who is king. And so the people of God uh, face a number of different challenges in this season. And, and the judges, uh, many uh, function wisely for the people. Some of them, not so much. But in it all, God is king. And then... What happens is that there's a great battle between the people of Israel and the Philistines and, and the Lord God protects them and fights for them and, and, and rules over them faithfully, providing them victory. But the challenges of the day, the, the trials that the people of Israel are facing are so substantial that they cry out, just as I described, we cry out for an authoritarian rule here on earth. Here's what, what happens. It, it begins in verse 4. <clears throat> Chapter 8, 1 Samuel. 
So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, you're old. That's not really a great, like, convincing starting point for, like, a a request. Like, can you imagine someone comes to you and, like, hey, I really need this thing. You're old. Um, So that's how they started out. Uh, Not very wise, but nonetheless, this is what they do. They say, you're old. Your sons do not follow your ways. So they're not, they're his sons who are functioning in an apprentice fashion uh, are not uh, producing the same sort of wise judgment that he has had. Now appoint, they say to him, now appoint a king to lead us. We need a king to lead us. Such as all the other nations have. We want to be like them. We're the only one that has God as king. We, we, we need a king like they have that, 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 can, that can tell us what to do, that could, that could be here and work, uh, work for us in that way. But, they said, uh, but when they said this, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, as would be expected. So he prayed to the Lord. I love that. I love that whenever the people are so foolish as to, as to say something that displeases him, rather than just fire back at them, He turns to the Lord. That's what he's supposed to do as a judge because he's to turn to the king. Okay? He turns to the Lord. And then in verse 7, it continues on. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people. Uh, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they've rejected. He wants to comfort Samuel so that Samuel knows it's not about you. It's not you they've rejected. But they are rejecting me as their king as they have done from the day i brought them up out of egypt until this day forsaking me and serving other gods so that uh, so they are doing so they are doing to you now listen to them but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights they're rejecting me god says look i i've set this up in a very specific way god says i'm king God, God, says, God says, I am king, and, and unlike any other nation, unlike any other people on earth, as everyone else turns to flesh and blood human for their authoritarian rule, when they turn to them as king, they are inevitably going to receive foolishness and a lack of wisdom. But you, my people, turn to me as king, and now you reject me. They reject God. But, but God wants Samuel, hey, warn them. Tell them what's up. Break it down for them. If, if you actually get what you ask for, then there are going to be consequences to those uh, requests. And so tell them what's going to happen. And so uh, Samuel then breaks it down in this way. Basically, if you get an earthly king, everything's taken from you. Over and over again. An earthly king will take your sons, send them off to war. Some of them might be lucky, get to like be generals over 50 or 500 people. But most of them, most of your sons are going to be sent to the front lines and they are, just, they, they are just there to be trampled. They will die. This king will take your sons. Then he says, they will take your daughters. Not for anything particularly important, it seems, but he, he breaks down that he will take your daughters to become perfumers and cooks and bakers. Okay? 
Now, it doesn't stop there. Not just take your sons, not just take your daughters, but an, but an earthly king will also take the produce of your fields. In verse 14. And then in verse, uh, in verse 16, it goes on and says, not just the produce of your field, but your livestock. So anything you work for, a king's going to take. Anything in your household, a king's going to take. Ultimately, all a king does is take, 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 and give so little. So if you want that kind of king, you need to, to beware. Because there, there are only two kinds of kings. Me, God, or an earthly king that will inevitably take everything. I want you to hear how, how Samuel sums it up in the second half of verse 17. He lays it out quite clearly, the ultimate outcome of a king. You yourselves will become his slaves. You yourselves will become his slaves. So how do the people respond? They ask for a king. Samuel goes to the Lord, says, hey, this is what they want, but they need to be warned. If you warn them, then in verse 18, if you get a king when that day comes, you'll cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And then here's their response, verse 19 and following. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. I'm sure God's thinking, what have I been doing all of these years? I've been fighting your battles. I've been going out before you. You, you, you don't remember the pillar, the cloud. You don't remember anything that I've been doing all these years. And then... Then when Samuel heard all, the people, uh, all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered, listen to them and give them their king. Listen to them and give them their king. It's woven, it seems, into the fabric of our broken human vessels that we cry out for authoritarian figures in the midst of trials and tribulation. But all the while, God is king, and we miss it. God, God then uh, uh, fulfills uh, uh, this, this great turn, restores, restores uh, this, this broken system to what it was meant to be in what we read in Isaiah chapter 9. This is, this is now a, a, a turning point again. So if you look at 1 Samuel 8 and then Isaiah 9, you could see it turn, uh, hinge twice over, and now go back to what it is meant to be, and it's done so in a unique and glorious way. So Isaiah is a major prophet, and he's writing uh, a, a great recording of prophetic work that leads, that leads the people of Israel into and out of exile 
And so they both experience what it means to, to go through the great darkness as they are conquered by the Babylonian nation, as they are sent from their homeland into exile, into the Babylonian exile, and then to cry out from that dark place, to know what it's like to be alone and to lose so much, to lose so much family, to lose their homeland, to lose uh, their security, to lose their norms. So many things that they have experienced in loss leads them to darkness, defeat, and despair. And so from that space, Isaiah brings forth a word and speaks directly into that. He says in verse 2, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light is dawned. So, so we, we immediately turn to light, and I love it. And it's beautiful for us to hear that, that there's this light dawning and this new thing happening that, that brings light to the world. However, we must first understand that the people that are receiving this message know darkness. And, and Isaiah articulates this by saying, darkness and deep darkness. So if you just think darkness uh, was bad enough, uh, then you're going to add a layer onto that, and it's even deep darkness. So everyone that receives this can relate to it. So go to those spaces where you have experienced the most trying circumstances in your life, and the darkness, the weight of that darkness, the weight of that deep darkness that was upon you, Go there, and that's when Isaiah is speaking to you. That's when Isaiah is speaking to us. And he says, a light has dawned. Put that image in your mind as the sun breaks forth over the horizon, and there is a glow that extends all across the land. And things that once laid in shadow, now are brought forth into vibrant light. Put that image in your mind. And what is the necessary response to light dawning? Rejoicing. It, it, is, it is the only thing that can be done is to rejoice. And we hear that in verse 3. You've enlarged the nation. You've increased their joy. This rejoicing is so profound. He, they, they, they try to put a metaphor to it, two metaphors, so that we could grasp how awesome it is. It's like when the harvest comes in. Okay, it's like when, when you've been working and working and working and toiling over your land such that you trust that a harvest might be produced. And when you get to that harvest and it actually is produced, it's time for a feast. There is a party. There is rejoicing that must happen. Metaphor one. Metaphor two, it's like warriors who rejoice in dividing the plunder. Once you divided the plunder, the battle is over. You have survived and you have been victorious. And so when you're on this other side, there is only one thing you can do. You must have a party. You must rejoice. When light breaks through, rejoicing is the necessary uh, necessary outcome of our heart. And so, we, we get to a, a key turning point word as we get to verse 4, and then we hear it again in verse 6. It says, for. So, we, we've heard about this light, we've heard about the rejoicing, and we want to know the, the, the why, what is the, the, the reason for this light? What is the reason for this rejoicing? And verse 4 and 5 
break it down and say, for God has been victorious. Because God has been victorious. And we might think over what? Over, over, over a battle? Over a battle like the Philistines in, in 1 Samuel chapter 7? Uh, over over uh, leading his people out of Egypt as we see in the Exodus? Uh, what are we talking about here? So, so even the, the victory seems to, to, to be somewhat ambiguous. And, and here's what it is. It's about restoring that which was lost in 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's about hinging back to the way that it's supposed to be. And then we get the second four. So if you have your Bible, underline that second four in verse, in, in, in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now, we need to pause there because we've heard that many times over the course of our Christian walk. We've heard it in songs. We've heard it uh, in, in, echoed in every Advent season. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But we don't rest deeply enough in how odd that statement is. Whenever a son is, is born unto us, who is the us typically in that statement? A family. Some sort of family. And whenever that family has a son born into it, there's rejoicing in that. And there's, and there's typically pictures that, that are associated with it, right? Uh, whenever the, the, the son is born, uh, you, get, you get that moment whenever everybody's like exhausted, especially the one has, who has born the child, right? And they're, they're, they're sitting there and you take the picture with the baby and the parents, and then, and then whenever you're not in the vid land, you actually have grandparents come in one at a time, and they all like take pictures as well, and you uh, rejoice in those pictures, knowing that it's, it's an immediate family and then an extended family. So when you hear that a son has been born to us, you think about family. But God has a much grander word here. When God is declaring this to a people in despair, he is saying to us, all of us, every one of us, not limited to any immediate or extended family, but to the family of human creation, God's own creation, all of us have received this son but that's not uh, have received this child but that's not even the most complex of these two statements the second one uh, it, it should be perplexing and for us as christians we know the answer we know the the way that this makes sense but it makes no sense without without the truth of the gospel it says to us a son is given gifted offered and and that's like how did did this family choose to give this son, that makes little sense. But whenever we look at it through the lens of God offering his son, it makes total and absolute sense. A child is born and a son is given for all of us. And then it describes what, what this son does. <laughs> what this child, this newborn baby in a manger does. And it could be quite perplexing for us to, 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 to rest through it because it says the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be known as wonderful counselor, uh, uh, everlasting father, prince of peace. And you have all of these, these grand statements about a baby. 
And when we think over the course of history, we think of, of, of child kings, child royalty that have come into that office of authority. And, and historically, we know they have to be protected. They have to have uh, all of these counselors around them that will, that will make the decisions really for them. And in essence, a child king is a puppet king. Not so here. There's no description of anyone offering, offering any sense of manipulation over this child. This newborn baby, from the point of his entrance into the world, has the government resting on his shoulders. He is the prince of peace, which means that a baby establishes peace through his royalty. And we now know how outstanding this is when lived out in us. You see, brothers and sisters, whenever, whenever we hear of Christ's rule, we should hear it through the lens of something that is very common to us as Christians to say. We'll oftentimes say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And I feel like uh, in substantial ways we might grasp or, 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 or relate to uh, the, the Savior part of that phrase. That, that Jesus saves us from our sins and restores and puts us back together from our broken state. He is our Savior and we acknowledge that we need saving and that he is the one to accomplish it. But we need to spend just a little bit of time really grasping what it means that Jesus is Lord and what it means for us to declare that Jesus is my Lord. First of all, we need to rest on the truth that Jesus is Lord whether I say it or not, whether you say it or not, whether anyone says it or not. When Jesus was born in the manger, he was immediately Lord, Lord of all creation, Lord of all the earth. He was established as royalty immediately. And so whether or not anyone professes his lordship, he is Lord. Jesus is just factually Lord. But more than that, Jesus is offering for you and me, for all of us, to establish him as our Lord. And when Jesus is, is our Lord, Jesus is the one, whenever we face trials, whenever we're in darkness, whenever, whenever we're facing challenges, we turn to him, not any other authority figure. We turn to God for wisdom and guidance. We turn to God to see us through. We turn to God to shine light in darkness. We turn to God because he is our Lord in Jesus Christ. And so for us to, to take a moment and, and know that this offering is there for you and for me, not just to receive him as Savior, but to receive him as Lord so that he will guide our every step and we could depend on him in that way and we could avoid that human temptation to walk away from God and turn to other gods, but to say, no, this Jesus is my Lord. It is a life changing decision that alters the way in which we move and have our being in the world. And it started on that first Christmas. And Isaiah spoke of it 
hundred, hundreds of years before it took place. This was God's plan to restore, to restore his place amongst his people. And he did it in Jesus. So that offering stands for you and for me today to call out to the Lord, Jesus Christ, and invite him into that position in our lives as well. Let's pray. Gracious God, what a gift it is to know that you are, that you are our Lord, that, 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 that we do face darkness trials and challenges and and we do not know where to turn but yet you are there to guide us to offer wisdom and to see us through so we pray oh god that you would that you would establish your kingdom forever in our lives that we would not only be restored by you but we would uh, we would be able to walk in your footsteps Lord, we thank you that you have been established as king of all the earth. Now we ask, oh God, that you would be king of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.